Welcome to In Search of Wisdom, where each episode explores how to integrate timeless wisdom into everyday life. We engage in meaningful conversations with leading thinkers in philosophy, leadership, theology, and everything in between. We leave no stone unturned in search of wisdom. To learn more, visit perennialleader.com. Hello and welcome. Thank you for listening. I am Joshua, and this is In Search of Wisdom. On today's episode, my guest is Julian Bagini, the author of The Great Guide, What David Hume Can Teach Us About Being Human and Living Well. In this conversation, we discuss what we can learn from David Hume, how to be open-minded, the limits of human understanding, the wisdom of experience, and much more. I hope you enjoy this wide-ranging conversation. Please welcome the wise and gracious Julian Bagini. Thank you for coming on In Search of Wisdom, Julian. Thanks very much. That's a very wise, a very gracious introduction. <laughs> I don't know if it's a wise one. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. To begin the conversation, would you mind sharing a, a bit of, of your story and, and what led you to philosophy? Well, I think like a lot of people, I came to philosophy almost accidentally, really. I just think that I started out with an interest in those big questions, uh, you know, why are we here and, and how should we live? Uh, those were the main ones. And in in Britain, really, there wasn't a culture of public philosophy when I was growing up. So you didn't really come across philosophy. You know, it wasn't in schools. Um, but I did do things like religious studies and government and politics and English literature. And it was always the more philosophical aspects of those subjects that really attracted me. So I did apply to do philosophy with English literature at university. I ended up just doing philosophy in the end. And it was it was always just, you know, one step at a time. You know, it's only towards mm. the end of the undergraduate degree that I thought, actually, I might want to do some postgraduate work. And it was only towards the end of the postgraduate work that I thought, actually, you know, I want to carry on doing something in philosophy beyond that. Um, but I didn't want to be that very narrow academic specialist. And fortunately, I've been able to carve out a niche as a something of a generalist. Mm. How about the new book, The Great Guide? Why David Hume and, and why now, I guess? Well, I mean, with books, I think a lot of people, when you ask these sort of questions, they'll make it sound like there's some kind of you know, fundamental necessity as to why this book now. And they don't acknowledge the fact that there are lots of contingent factors around why you get to write the books that you write. I've always been, ever since I've done philosophy, a great admirer of Hume. But um, like a lot of people who I admire, you know, there's lots of his work I've simply never read because there's always something else to do. And I was approached very, very uh, strangely by a Korean publisher who were writing a whole series of books on different philosophers and thinkers and artists. And they wanted to know if I would do one for them. And Hume wasn't on their list, actually. I suggested he should be, <laughs> because um, it, although amongst the general public he's not that well known, he is the philosopher's philosopher. Surveys have shown that among professional philosophers he's the most admired, and they said yes. So I wrote a version of this book for a Korean publisher to be published in Korean. But in, in taking it from there, I actually got into it so much, and I enjoyed it a heck of a lot. And I ended up just talking with Princeton University Press, 
And what we did was they kind of bought the rights to that book, but then we then significantly reworked it. It's, a, it's quite a different book from the Korean one, which was designed to fit into a series. And, and I, the reason I sort of took it on in the first place for the Koreans was that, I mean, I'm a freelance writer. I need to earn to pay my living. And they were paying just enough to, to make it justify myself in dedicating the time because I wanted, it was an excuse really, to tie myself to the mast and spend that time with Hume and his work that I really wanted to do. And it would just about pay the way to doing that. So it was, a, it was an opportunity out of nowhere. And that, which is wonderful. So I think, you know, one of the things about doing a, a, an undergraduate degree or the postgraduate degree is it is so marvelous to be given the time and space to spend, you know, a few years just really getting into something. And you don't often get the opportunity to do that uh, once you've left education, actually. Mm, I love that. And I'm glad that you did. I really enjoyed the book. Why would you say Hume is a lesser known figure outside of philosophy? Um, well, I mean, the, the, I suppose the straight answer to that, I think, is em empirically true. When you talk about, you know, if you ask people to name a philosopher, if they mentioned Hume, they probably wouldn't be able to say anything about him. They might know he was a notorious infidel. That may be about it. Um, <laughs> but why that is the case, I think there are a few reasons. I mean, first of all, he just doesn't really conform to the stereotype of the, the tortured intellectual. I mean, a lot of the, a lot, if you think about a lot of philosophers who are, who are most well-known, you've got like Nietzsche, who's this kind of really kind of iconoclastic figure, or you've got someone like Kierkegaard, who's this sort of melancholic chap. Socrates, who, you know, who died for philosophy. Um, you know, <laughs> there's something sort of romantic about these figures. And, and Hume wasn't like that. He had a, a crisis in early life, which he recovered from very quickly. And after that, he was a, just a very well-balanced, even-tempered person who didn't have any great crises and was just very moderate. And I think, unfortunately, moderation doesn't sell <laughs> very well. <laughs> I wish it did because uh, most of my work is quite moderate. But, you know, for example, when I write for newspapers and magazines, an issue I often have is that often they want someone with a fairly extreme position. Whereas my position is often, uh, they, it's a bit more complicated than that. Let's take a nuanced view response. But imagine yourself as a headline writer. That's a real challenge. <laughs> you know, it's all a bit complicated. It isn't a great um, bit of clickbait, I don't think. Um, so I think there's, it's partly that. It's also partly because you know, his, his best-known ideas in philosophy do seem a bit abstract, if you say human to a philosopher, they'll probably, the first thing they'll think about is causation, his ideas about causation. And maybe we'll talk about that later, but, you know, that's, that's quite a theoretical. It doesn't, doesn't seem to be directly related to real life. Um, also, you know, in terms of his moral philosophy, he doesn't sort of have principles for living explicitly. His moral philosophy is about the, very, the basis of morality, if you like, not a series of like moral precepts and instructions. So it doesn't seem practical from that point of view. But what I kind of discovered writing the book, perhaps I, I thought this was the case before I started it and it got confirmed writing it, was that when you, when you look at Hume's life and work as a, as a whole, look at the two things together, it makes a lot more sense. And, and you do get uh, a philosopher who I think does tell us practical, useful things about how to live and not just give us uh, interesting philosophical arguments. Mm. One theme that seemed to come up for me quite a bit was around being open-minded 
you write, a, a skeptical open mind has nothing to fear and much to gain from seeking the company and opinions of those it seriously disagrees with. This seems to be an important theme and, and in need today. How do you think Hume can teach us to be more open-minded? Yeah, well, I think that's, a, again, a good example of, of when you look at life and work together, you get a more complete picture than, than just looking at one. I mean, in his own works, he was considered a kind of a notorious infidel and an atheist even, although he didn't really take the label atheist himself. But he was highly sceptical of religion, and particularly organised religion. But the way he writes about it, it's never just angry or dismissive. And one of his greatest works is, is a, the Dialogues Concerning Natural Religion. It was what it's called a dialogue. It's actually got three participants. And you have three people arguing around... Yeah, the, the natural religion is the idea of whether or not there are arguments for God being the creator, uh, for, for God's existence and so forth. And the point about that is it's quite remarkable because all three characters say things which, as a reader, you find yourself at times thinking, got a point there, you know, that, that's sensible. You don't have kind of a fool guy or the hero. I mean, it, it, people even sort of disagree as to whether or not one of these characters, Philo, represents Hume's view. Most say he doesn't, that none of these characters actually represent his view, although Philo is the one who comes closest to them. Now, that's a really difficult skill. Compare that to Plato's dialogues. I mean, Plato's dialogues are wonderful in lots of ways. But one thing I always found somewhat annoying about them is that there's no question that Socrates is the smart guy and everyone else is just, you know, there is the full guy for him, really. They're there to either feed him the answers to make him look clever or to show how stupid they are. It's, it's not a real exchange. Socrates is not learning from the people he's talking to. He is instructing them. So if you compare, you know, the dialogue, Hume's dialogues and, and Plato's dialogues, you see, you know, one approach to, to this, which is about really trying to give the best account possible to people who have different opinions. And one is about, you know, getting your own point of view across. And in his life, I think Hume lived that. It wasn't just in the dialogues. He spent uh, a few years when he was young in La Fleche in southern France, uh, where he uh, was writing his first uh, book, The Treatise of Human Nature. And he chose La Flèche because it was very quiet and didn't have many distractions. But also there was a Jesuit monastery there. And, of course, the Jesuits were highly scholarly people. And he spent long hours talking to them uh, and, and chatting with them and enjoyed their company. He didn't agree with them at all about their theological views, but he found things of interest in their company. And all through his life, he had correspondents and friends who were clergy people and religious. And so I think, you know, it, 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 what he really shows is this, this is, it's, it's, people often say, oh, an open mind is a good thing. But in practice, they don't necessarily demonstrate it because first of all, they don't really mm. like talking to people with different views. And secondly, you know, they don't really represent those views in their best light to themselves. They just sort of dismiss them. And I think he really, really models in his life and his work that, that importance of, of trying to take other people's views seriously. Even when you disagree with them, that's the point, because a lot of people think that yeah, open-mindedness is somehow to be equated with a kind of fluffy suspension of judgment. And it's not like mm. that. <laughs> you can have very <laughs> clear beliefs and yet still be open-minded. That's really helpful. You mentioned earlier about this skepticism 
How do you think this skepticism connects with just a, a not knowing? I think something that was written around this narrow limits of, of our human understanding. How, what are Hume's thoughts there, and, and how did he maybe come to this conclusion of our, our limited understanding? Well, I mean, this is a very interesting point, because skepticism, of course, has a very long history in philosophy. And a lot of people actually objected to Hume's philosophy for being too sceptical. Um, Kant was sort of scandalized by it. Kant thought that Hume's view left us with just no knowledge at all. It was kind of awful. <laughs> um, but, I mean, he, this is what I think shows Hume's subtlety, really. What he kind of saw was that if you are to apply a entirely rigorous kind of rational criterion to our beliefs and our judgments, you would be left with a kind of absolute scepticism. There is not a single belief that we have that we can justify as certainly true. And this is where cause and effect comes in. I mentioned cause and effect earlier. But um, this is a very counterintuitive thought and probably won't sound persuasive if I, I give it in summary. But you know, he thought, you know, cause and effect, we have, if you don't believe in cause and effect, you make no sense of the world whatsoever. You know, why do you drink water when you're hot like we are here in the UK today? Because you believe it's going to hydrate you and it's going to sake your thirst. I mean, that's, cause and effect is behind that, right? I mean, you don't think, oh, I'm following a principle of cause and effect. But, of course, implicitly, you are. Why do you um, not... Why, why, when you sit in your chair, do you do so not very gingerly because you're not very sure whether it's going to support your weight? Because, you know, this is a chair you sat on before. It's sturdy. It's going to hold your weight. You know, everything we do depends upon assumptions of cause and effect. Hume's point was, though, that if you want to say, well, what justifies our belief in cause and effect? You don't get that justification from pure reason. Pure reason but the reason being that pure reason can only tell you essentially about how concepts relate to each other. And there's nothing in logic which tells you that everything in the world must be the effect of a prior cause. That's not a logical principle. But then most people say, well, that's true, of course. But we discover it. it, it so it's, it experience tells us that everything is a result of cause and effect. But Hume's point is, well, actually, no. What experience tells you is that one things follow each other with certain regularities. That's all experience tells you. When we say that the reason for that connection is that there is some causal power linking them, we're adding to our experience something that experience doesn't give us. Which, by the way, is why, is why <laughs> it's not completely ridiculous, that view known as occasionalism, which had a brief popularity in the 17th century, which was the idea that actually there is no cause and effect in nature, that God is constantly ensuring that the same things follow with the same regularity, right? So uh, it, 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 God's constant intervention is required in order to maintain the regularity of nature. There's no inherent uh, power there. Now, to cut a long story short, because this is there's scholarly dispute about this, I don't think there's any reason at all to think that Hume doubted that cause and effect weren't real, that there are real causal powers. But his sceptical push is to say, Yes, but when we say that is the case, that is something which is not strictly justified by experience or by logic, but it is something we just have to accept, right? And that 
that kind of approach is one which he pushes scepticism to its limits. He pushes reason to its limits. He shows us what it can't do. But he then doesn't leave us in a place of desperation. He, he's just trying to sort of like make clear to us that there are certain things we have to accept to make sense of the world at all. And they don't stand on anything more secure. Now, if you can go with Hume on that journey and accept it, I think, and I can, then that's fine. But a lot of people are left troubled by that because they they want to thump the table and say, yes, but I need more than that. I need security. I need to be sure that cause and effect are real. And, and I don't get that from Hume. Well, but that's part of the lesson, I think, the wisdom of Hume, which is we have to live with the acceptance of an absence of a fundamental justification and platform for all our beliefs. And that's not the same as saying that anything goes or we have no reason at all to believe in things or that all beliefs are equal, but it's about being really clear-sighted about the limits of what experience and reason can teach us. How does that show up for you by accepting that, Julian, in everyday life? Any examples that maybe come up where that comes to mind? Well... I think this kind of attitude in everyday life is it's a, it's a it's a it's a it's a very good question because there's not an instant leap out answer which is usually a sign of a good of a good question. I, I, how can I put this? I think what it does is it doesn't really sort of like change. It's not like you, you, this changes individual things that happen in your day or the way you may approach a particular thing. It's more like the sort of background colouring of how you see the world. I mean, I'm probably not putting this very clearly, but I think that a lot of the time when we move around the world, you know, there's a kind of a, the metaphor is there's a kind of a water that you swim in, right? (laughs) And the water that you swim in becomes so part of who you are and such a natural thing, you don't notice it, but it is there. And I think for me that, that kind of, you know, radical acceptance of the uncertainty of the basis of things um, it becomes kind of the, the, the water I swim in, the, the air that I breathe. So I think that it, it just means that I'm not constantly craving or striving for some kind of cosmic reassurance that what I believe must be must be correct. And a certain kind of acceptance also that one, one could be wrong without that being a terrifying uh, thought. But I think it probably also does link in with, with other views I might have about... Um, you know, the indeterminacy of, of the self and the impermanence of identity, the impermanence of life. A certain kind of acceptance that we, we live in a world which in some ways does kind of exceed our understanding or our capacity to understand, cannot grasp it. Um, we never fully, we can never fully comprehend it, but we can make enough sense of it to sort of get on and live in it and, and, and treasure it. I don't know if that's, and I don't know if it's an answer to your question, let alone a good answer. <laughs> no, I, I really appreciate that of coloring the background. Um, it resonates with me. I think sometimes of different models that may not apply, but there there's running in the in the background that may, I guess, help make make sense of things. Well, I think. I mean, I mean, I mean, if I, yeah. I mean, I think I think that's true. For example, you know, I think that. Um, what happens when you meet someone you disagree with, for example? I mean, what's the kind of a natural reaction 
that someone has. And I, I won't pretend that when I meet someone I disagree with, I always have the, the right reaction because I don't. You know, sometimes I do find myself thinking, well, that's just silly or you're crazy or you're foolish, etc., etc. But I think that kind of human um, background does make me kind of more kind of interested and curious and of, of why someone might believe that thing and not just dismissing them as being crazy, even if I think that they are false. And actually, I mean, you know, I, if, I think that's actually, if I'm thinking about this, I mean, I, I know from what people have said to me who know me very well, I mean, that is actually a kind of a skill I, I do have. I, I sometimes get in conversations where people will say, how on earth can they think that? Why on earth are they doing that? And actually, I, I find that, I often don't find it too difficult to imagine why they might not be might, might be thinking that or doing that. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, that's not because I'm a brilliant psychologist or I'm great at analyzing people's motives. It's just that if you don't leap, if you, if you keep that open mind, if you don't leap to the assumption that someone is obviously just foolish or idiotic, it often doesn't take a lot of thought to work out why they might be thinking what they're thinking <laughs> or doing what they're doing. You know, it's not as difficult as it seems, but we get blinded to it because we're, we're constantly... We, because we want our own worldview to be reinforced, we just dismiss something that clashes with it. Speaking of psychology, how does Hume's ideas align with with maybe modern psychological research? Well, I, mean, I think it's, it's one of the interesting things and surprising things for me was that I, I ended up with quite a list of things where Hume had essentially identified something which you know, we think of, you know, if you've read any kind of popular psychology, you think of as being a discovery of probably 20th century or even 21st century psychology. So, um, you know, for example, uh, hyperbolic discounting is this idea that um, we, we tend to uh, give less weight to consequences of actions the further in the future that, than they are. And that can often be um, irrational. And, uh, I don't have the quote to hand, but basically Hume described that extremely accurately. Um, there's also uh, confirmation bias is something else he describes. A confirmation bias is where you're more likely to believe something that can uh, that fits with your existing beliefs and to discount evidence that goes against it. And there's six or seven of these things, at least, that, that he describes. And it's actually quite remarkable because you know he wasn't an experimenter <laughs> he just he just was a very keen observer of the human mind i mean and that was his fundamental topic i mean this first book was a treatise of human nature i mean he his fundamental task was to try and understand human nature and you know human nature in that broad sense how the mind works essentially how the mind works more than anything else actually um and he was just a very very astute and acute observer of that um and it does make me think sometimes that contemporary psychology is, I think, partly because it craves the validity of the sciences, is very wedded to its kind of experiments. But I actually often think, they, I mean, we know a lot of the experiments aren't very good <laughs> and they're, uh, or not very rigorous. Um, they tend to generalize from very, very narrow laboratory conditions to, to general life. And I sometimes think that... Um, really we should be a bit more honest and recognize that the, the, the most useful uh, psychological insights come from just the examination of 
the way people think and work. And yes, we may want to, if we, we may want to devise experiments which may like to confirm these things to make sure we haven't got it wrong. But most of the things that we discover about the way the mind works accurately, if they're true, what confirms they're true is that they conform with the experience that anyone, if we all have. You don't perhaps need an experiment to prove it. Um, I'm sure a lot of psychologists would like to disagree with me about that. <laughs> that was uh, something I found fascinating as well is around this hyperbolic discounting. Um, he states there's no quality in human nature which causes more fatal errors in our conduct than that which leads us to prefer whatever is present to the distant and remote. How do you think you mentioned observation? Do you think it was mostly self-observation of coming to these conclusions or observations of, you know, society and culture? Yeah, that's a very good question because I don't think you could know that by looking at the way he writes um, because, you know, the way he writes, he wouldn't present his arguments as explicitly being based on any kind of experiment or, or specific observations. He sometimes gave anecdotes and examples. The one case where self-observation, I think, was really important was on his ideas of personal identity because he was reacting largely against Descartes and those who felt that the, your identity resided in some kind of indivisible permanent essence of self that you could discover by introspection. You know, I mean, Descartes' famous, I think, therefore I am, was uh, the, the argument for that was that he, Descartes, he could doubt everything apart from the fact that he was thinking. Somehow he got from that to the idea that the self was this indivisible, purely mental essence. There are some leaps there, which I think were not valid in retrospect. But when he's arguing against that, he says, for my part, and so this is, you know, as far as I can tell, when I most enter most intimately into what I call myself, I find only certain sensations, memories, thoughts. I'm paraphrasing a bit at this point. So he explicitly presents that as an argument that this is what he finds when he introspects, that there is no I, there is only particular thoughts and experiences and that it is this totality and collection of interrelated experiences, which is the eye, right? The eye is the sum of its parts. The eye is not the thing that has these thoughts and experiences. It is simply all these thoughts and experiences together. And he presents that explicitly as something discovered by introspection. And I think that's interesting. Although, of course, the implication is that the reader, if the reader cares to do this for themselves, they will discover the same thing. You know, that's the, that's the uh, fairly clear uh, corollary of that. But on other times, he just offers these things as observations about, you know, how people are. And again, I think he probably expected his readers to judge whether they're true or false on the basis of whether or not when they looked as carefully as he did, when they attended to this, they thought, mm, that's true, that's true. Or whether they thought, no, no, that's not right. You got that wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Hearing you explain it, it, it sounds like an influence potentially from Eastern philosophy. Is that coincidence? Do you do you see any sort of over overlap there? 
Yeah, no, it's a very good question, and I think it, I think it probably is coincidence. Now, as you said, Hume's view of the self is pretty much the same as the traditional Buddhist view of the self. The no, sometimes called the no self view, but perhaps more accurately, the not self view, where not self, the self which is not, is a particular conception. You know, atta, which is that it has its idea in 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 the what we now call the Hindu tradition. Um, it's it is basically the same idea. I mean, there's no there's no doubting it. So, the idea that the, the, in the Buddhist language, you know, there are only they're the aggregates which comprise the self, and the self is this collection of the aggregates. Um, and the idea that he might have actually got it from there, it remains an intriguing possibility. And um, look up online uh, the. Very interesting long essay written by Alison Gopnik about this, um, who went into it a bit. And the connection she made was that Hume, as we said earlier, spent time in this Jesuit monastery. The Jesuits were often traveling to India in particular and Mm. studying the local religions and coming back. And there was one particular Jesuit who went there and wrote quite a long book describing the uh, various views there, including the Buddhist view of the self. The book was never published, of course, because it was heretical to publish things of not, outside of Catholicism, but the manuscripts did circulate in um, Jesuit institutions. And obviously this, this guy also travelled and spoke with people. And, you know, Gopnik does show that it's pretty clear this guy had been to the monastery in La Flesh, not at the same time as Hume, but a little bit earlier, so therefore, there is a very possible route of transmission there, and so that. But that, that's the hardest evidence we've got against mm. that. I would say that there are two reasons for thinking. Although it's been nice to think that's true, although not nice to think that if it were true, Hume didn't acknowledge it, right? Because if it were true, why didn't he say, you know, I, I and and maybe that was prejudice because he he felt there was nothing we could really learn from from the East because despite being a great figure in lots of ways, he did. He was not a perfect human being at all. He did have some racial prejudices. Um, but I think the main reasons for thinking it wasn't that was were two. First of all, Hume's view is very similar in many respects to that of John Locke, who came before him. So, you know, you can see his view as a development of Locke's without the need to hypothesize a, a third party. And the second thing is, which is more straightforward in a way, if this view is correct, which I believe it is, and if the way to sort of show its correctness is essentially by careful introspection, you would expect the same idea to be found independently in different parts of the world, right? You know, mm-hmm. um, it, it, it was only a matter of time before someone in the Western tradition uh, identified this idea as, as, as had been done already in, in the Buddhist tradition. So I think that the fact that it follows on quite naturally from Locke's view of the self and the fact that it's something which in a sense, it only takes a very astute observer to, to notice, and it is true. It means you don't have you, you don't have to postulate um, the encounter with Buddhism to account for its emergence in Hume's thought. You write about how Hume also dabbled in Stoicism and came to the conclusion that it was a bit too much against the grain of, of human nature. Are there any schools or individuals from ancient philosophy that heavily influenced Hume that you came across? Well, I mean, he did, he did read uh, the Stoics a lot, and I think he was heavily influenced by them. 
Um, although, he, again, he ultimately did reject them as too extreme. And I think, again, this, this, this speaks very highly of him. Stoicism's undergone a bit of a, a revival in, in recent years, but the, sort of the, the modern Stoics, uh, they, they reject the more extreme versions of the original Stoicism, either by saying that we can do without them, or by saying that they weren't really there in the first place, which I think, I think the, second, the second isn't really very credible. I mean, essentially, the more extreme options are that and the way Hume explains it, and I think what seems to me the most fair way of explaining it, is that the Stoics really did believe that the only thing of genuine value was your own kind of a rational part. And that all, the, all these other things were of, of essentially no value. Now, they, they knew that we would value them to a certain extent, and they, they had a certain tolerance for you know, enjoying the company of friends and your wife and your children and so forth. But they were very clear that you should, really shouldn't be any more attached to them than you could be. And it would be best if you weren't attached to them at all. And, you know, for Hume, just, he just saw that for what it is, which was like inhumane, you know. And, th- and that insight he got quite young, I think it was very important because, you know, you, you, a philosophy has to be a philosophy for human beings, not for kind of idealized creatures that we would prefer human beings to be. So he had a, real, a, a realism there. Another, but I think in a way, this is the most, one of the most curious things I find about Hume is that one of the ancient philosophers who he has most in common with, I think, is Aristotle. Mm. And he, he definitely would have read Aristotle. Uh, in the li- I, I got to see the library at La Fleche, um, which has a lot of the original volumes that were there when Hume was there. The works, the works of Aristotle were all there. He mm. hardly mentions Aristotle at all, once or twice, and never about his ethics. But the thing that, that Hume is almost a carbon copy of Aristotle on is his emphasis on character. So in moral philosophy today, um, if you do a course in moral philosophy, it's changing a little bit, but it used to be the case that the two, the two competing approaches were what was called the approach associated with Kant, which is called the deontological approach, if you want the technical term, which was about the ideas of duties and responsibilities. That We have certain duties and responsibilities, and that's what... Uh, is the basis of morality, or the consequentialist approach, which is basically saying that uh, the good, the right thing to do is that which produces good results, and the bad thing to do is that which produces bad results. End of story. But the th- the third approach, which has got a bit of a renaissance in recent decades, is the virtue ethics approach, which says that actually, you know, these rules and principles aren't that good. What really makes a difference between good people and bad people is that good people have a, have a robust moral character. And that robust moral character is not about carrying around a little internal rule book. It's about having sensitivity to context. It's about having that sort of ability to adjust your reactions to, to what the particular demands of what's going on. And, you know, and, and Hume often talked in ways which, you know, if you, if you quoted the lines, if you sort of like change the style a bit, it could just be Aristotle. And yet he didn't reference Aristotle in that way. And I find that rather curious. Mm. I had a similar question around that. I was curious as well. I, I think of the golden mean or that degree. You write, do not ask yourself whether you are brave or cowardly, generous or selfish calm or volatile, but to what extent and in what ways you exhibit all of these traits. What does Hume mean here? Yeah, I mean, that's my kind of paraphrase of it. But I think, you know, this, this is following the Aristotle's idea that um, 
I think that we do tend to, when we think about character and personality, it's very easy to kind of like say certain things are good, certain things are bad, or if we're not talking mm. good or bad, but a person is a certain way or not a certain way. Um, an example I can give of this actually, which I think fairly recently come to think is, is really, really problematic, is the introvert-extrovert distinction, right? So, uh, okay, so we know it's not an either war. We know there's kind of a spectrum, you know, and people can be in a different place on that spectrum. And the way psychologists understand that, it's not about whether you're shy or confident around people. It's basically the extent to which you uh, find the need to be in company, to re-energize yourself, or by the extent to which you need to retreat to re-energize yourself. <laughs> it's where you get your energy from. No definition is perfect, but that's the, most, that's the best one I've kind of come up with. Now, the point is this, that we tend to think that we're all on a certain point in that spectrum. But actually, is that really true? And I wonder if it is, because it seems to me that, first of all, where we are on that spectrum is, may well depend a lot on what else is going on in our lives. And, and Hume demonstrated this too. There were times where he lived in a very, very solitary way, in the countryside, with hardly anyone there. And there were times we lived in the city with company. And he saw the attractions of both. So he had his extrovert side, his introvert side. And, you know, at different times in his life, at different phases, it made more sense to emphasise one over the other. And But also just simply, even within a small phase of life, on certain days, <laughs> you may feel more one than the other. Depending on what else is going on in your life, you may feel more like one than the other. And so I think, I think it's, it's, once you say this, it kind of sounds obvious to people. But then you think, so why is it, though, that we tend to sort of think of people as being one of these things? Now, with virtues, mm. now, virtues is an old-fashioned old sounding word. But a virtue is essentially a kind of a disposition to act in a certain way, uh, which has a moral character to it. So, yeah, the, stand, the easiest example is bravery. So we tend to think that people are brave, good thing cowardly bad thing but um the Aristotelian approach which again Hume's writing basically echoes is that it's not as simple as that because context is all for a start so there are situations where um to be as it were brave it, you, you go too far with that and you're in fact being rash you're putting people at risk you're putting yourself at risk too much and that's not brave that's rashness and there are other situations in which you know uh it's, it's not being cowardly isn't being cowardly. It's being appropriately cautious. And the point is that you can't even say there's, a, there's an appropriate midpoint between these things, which is right for all situations. Some situations call for us to take greater risks where we need to be more towards the you know, rash end of the spectrum. Other situations require that we're more cautious and the, the right point is closer to the cowardly end of the spectrum. So it varies according to context, to moment, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, this, of course, makes life very messy and complicated. I mean, people really like, don't they? I mean, one thing I've learned from a very young age, because I liked it myself, is to do little psychometric tests or anything and to give yourself a label, you know, give yourself your Myers-Briggs profile, whatever it might be. There's something we find very reassuring in being able to kind of label ourselves and others. But the, the much wiser approach, which I think Aristotle and Hume advocated was to to recognize that you know to, to be a really mature and um reflective person you need to be a little bit more flexible than that and, and to be a bit more adaptive and 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 don't 
people say they don't like to put them to be put into boxes, but it's amazing how often people do voluntarily put themselves into boxes by giving them giving themselves these character and virtue labels. That is great. Love the analogy. As we start to wrap up with our time, I wanted to touch on your book, uh, How the World Thinks, which I recently started really enjoying. You write, understanding philosophy is a, a window into culture. Does Hume's philosophy provide any insights into the culture of, of his time? Well, it does. I think largely in the negative ways. Um, the ways in which Hume was right uh, turn out to be fairly timeless, I think, you know. And I think that's one of the interesting things about philosophy. You can still read old philosophy in a way in which it, you can't read a lot of old science, you know. And even history as well, actually. Hume's histories are pretty out of date. They're just a bit superseded. But where he got things wrong, I think you really do see um, the influence of his, of his culture on him. So, for example, I mean, there was a, a, quite a big fuss last year because uh, Hume wrote a, a racist footnote. There's no other way of putting it. In one of his essays, he has a racist footnote in which he basically claims, sorry, in which he basically claims that all the non-white species of mankind, as he puts it, were in, are inferior in some ways to, to the whites. Now, he didn't say that therefore, you know, slavery is justified or anything. In fact, he wrote against slavery very, very explicitly. Um, but nevertheless, you know, you, you, you can only excuse so much. This was a racist footnote. And, and, and that shows you that even a man of Hume's intelligence and insight and self-awareness could, in that kind of milieu, be blind to something. And I think this is important because I don't think we should have any heroes in the, from the past that we think got everything right. I think that's very dangerous. I think being reminded that even some of the finest minds in history were badly wrong on a few things is a, is a really important reminder to be vigilant and not to be complacent and assume we've got things right now. You know, people who say, oh, if I was living in Hume's age, there's no way I would have said that. I think, to be honest, you know, well, they just don't know. How can you possibly say that? And similarly around his attitudes to women. I mean, I don't think you could claim that Hume was a, a, a really awful misogynist, but he clearly did believe that the, the, the feminine mind was... Uh, differently constituted to the masculine mind and more suited to things like literature and poetry than it was to uh, harder kind of subjects, you know. And, and again, that's just an un, un, unfortunate mistake which reflects his times. So we, 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 we do see that. But, yeah, but more, more positively, um, what you really see in Hume, what reflects back his times, I think, is this sort of tussle that was going on between... A strand, a tradition of thought, which thought that you know reason, unaided reason by itself could give us uh, knowledge of the world, even God and everything, and the rising natural sciences, which said that actually no reason by itself can't do these things. We need to base our understanding on uh, reason, on, on evidence and experience. And Hume f fell onto that side. Of the debate, so you kind of see that kind of great debate of the time being played out in his works as well, and also, of course, you know, religion. I mean, you know, it, it's hard to understand how controversial some of Hume's writings on religion were, but but they absolutely mm -hmm. were, you know. And he he held off publishing some things during his lifetime because um, mm -hmm. they were deemed too too controversial. So his essay on suicide as well was only published after his death because. Um, 
he feared that he would come into too much censure if he was seen as promoting, endorsing suicide. How has writing this book on Hume maybe changed how you uh, think about him and his philosophy? Well, I'd say, like I said, I, I was always an admirer of him, but I think, you know, I think my admiration has, well, in a, it's curious in a way. It has overall grown, even though I've come to see some of his flaws more clearly. Um, and I think that's kind of, might sound paradoxical, but I think that's kind of right. You know, if you, well, you know, listen, if you, if you, if you, if you, enter, if you're in a long-term intimate relationship with someone, you know, for example, then, you know, one of the things that happens there is that you get to see <laughs> not, not so much the flaws of your partner, but the flaws of yourself more, you know, because you see them reflected back at you. So, um, but at the same time, that's also part of the developing of that kind of love and affection as well. So I think, you know, we, we understand how coming to really be honest about people's flaws can be part of coming to, to, to embrace them. But I think my admiration for him it, it, it has, has, has grown quite a lot. And I think that it's, but it's also been really helpful to be able to sort of spot the ways and look at the ways in which he, he did get things wrong or had certain weaknesses or biases. Because in a strange way, that that's reinforces the broader thrust of it. You know, that those details only reinforce the truth of the broader thrust of his philosophy is that we have to maintain this, this open mind, this skepticism, and this self, self-questioning. Um, mm. But ultimately, you know, he also lived a, 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 a good life, um, happy life, and he, he faced death with, with great fortitude. And, you know, he wasn't looking forward to it, don't get me wrong, but he, he dealt with that so well as well. And it's also very encouraging to have a figure like that who can show us that without any belief in anything to come, we can face our death knowing we've lived well enough. Without kidding ourselves, we live perfectly. If you could plaster up a Hume aphorism on billboards or bumper stickers, what might that be? Oh, crikey. Um, (laughs) I don't know. I think I would like, uh, in a way, I would like to do one, but a degendered version, because in the original he talks of um, a, a man. But I think it would be, you know, um, be be a philosopher, but amidst all your philosophy, be still a human being. Because I mm. think that you know, e- even if people take philosophy in that sentence to be something broader than you know, narrow academic philosophy, it's just that sense of always reminding ourselves that whenever we're doing any kind of like intellectual work or formulating a worldview, trying to make sense of things, got to also sort of keep a grip on on reality in a sense and what the reality is to be a human being. So it's, it's partly, you know, remain humane, you know, uh, but also make sure your philosophizing is taking account of that and hasn't become detached from it. So maybe that one. Nice. I encourage everyone to pick up the book, The Great Guide, What David Hume Can Teach Us About Being Human and Living Well. This has been a great conversation. Where do you point people interested in learning more about you, Julian? Well, julianbagini.com is just the obvious website. So uh, things are there. You can join a mailing list there. I, I, it's, it's a, it, I'm not um, productive enough to bombard your, email, your inbox too much. So <laughs> it's meant to be monthly. You'll be lucky to get eight a year in reality. So it's very low commitment. And um, I have a Patreon site. So if you get really interested, 
Um, the Patreon site is where you can get some exclusive content and take part in monthly exclusive online cafe philosophiques um, and also help me to continue to do my work because, yeah, at the end of the day, I am 80% at the moment. I've generally been 100% at the moment. I'm only 80% a freelance writer, but I'll be 100% a freelance writer at some point again. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, we'll link all of that in the show notes. Please check it out. Thank you so much for listening. You can get the show notes and links to resources mentioned at perennialleader.com slash podcast. If you're interested in learning more, subscribe to The Path. It's our free weekly newsletter. These are short reflections on wisdom for everyday life right to your inbox. And lastly, I urge you to put what you heard into practice. Until next time, be wise and be well.